Chapter 12 Signs and Wonders of Wrath Sermon 160, preached Wednesday, the 25th of March, 1556, on Deuteronomy 28, verses 46 through 50. And these things shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your seed forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he shall put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord shall bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old or show favor to the young. Because these things are so greatly confused in this world, so that it is hard to tell which people God intends to punish for their sins and which he intends to show his love, therefore Moses expressly says that God shall send such plain signs upon them that are stubborn against him, that they shall marvel at it. As a result, they will be compelled to understand that these came to pass neither by fortune nor by any ordinary means, but that they are extraordinary things, and that God has showed forth his power in them. It is true, as we have noted before, that at first sight it cannot be easily discerned who they are whom God loves and who they are whom he hates, because, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9.2, both good and evil are common to all. He that serves God sometimes prospers and oftentimes is afflicted. And the same is true of the despisers of God. This is why he says that men become hard-hearted. For it seems to them that they win nothing by serving God, or rather that it is but lost labor. Moreover, we often see that the children of God are sometimes handled more roughly than the most wicked in the world. From this, the carnal-minded gather that it is much better to despise God. David confessed in Psalm 73, 2, that he staggered as if drunk when he beheld the course of things to be such that the good and those who endeavor to walk in all manner of integrity are constrained to drink the water of trouble, to eat the bread of heaviness, and to moisten themselves with tears. But that meanwhile the wicked, who do not cease to do evil, live at their ease and in pleasure, whereby it should seem that God loves them. And what kind of dealing would that be? But our Lord declares in this place that in the end he shall make it apparent to them that are corrected by his hand that their sins are the reason why they suffer pain, even if it is not quickly perceived. We have seen already among the other curses that Moses pronounces that they who cast off the word of God are constrained to borrow and to be always in need but that the others, the righteous, who lend to them, have the wherewithal to help themselves. But we see how all the children of God fall into need, and do not find any that will comfort them. They make many turns before they meet with a man that will use gentleness toward them, and this seems clean contrary to the word spoken by Moses. But yet God is exercising his people after this fashion, and in that respect it is said that when we are afflicted, Whether it be with poverty or sickness or in any other way, we must not fail to enter into account with God. That is, to examine our lives and to see whether we have not committed any faults. 
and then will every one of us find himself at fault. But on the other hand, if we do not perceive the reason why God is moved to treat us rigorously, let us be content, recognizing that he knows it is profitable for us. If we have not already offended him, perhaps we are on the way to doing so, and he has prevented it. All these corrections are designed to bring us low, to the end that we should walk under him in fear, and that our flesh should not overcome us, as is its tendency. For God sometimes foresees the pride of a man, and then he takes away the occasions and the objects. Besides this, he knows that a man will be too cavalier in his pomps and delights, and therefore he cuts off the occasion beforehand, preventing a man from doing what he would. Seeing that our Lord provides beforehand for our welfare after such a fashion, let us think on the faults we have earlier committed. Moreover, if there were no further meaning in it than to move us to repentance, even that would be plenty. But we must always consider how God cannot provoke us too much to come to Him, for every least straw is enough to hold us in this world, so that meanwhile we do not think on the heavenly life at all. Or if we do think about it, we do it so coldly that we do not travel towards it with the kind of earnest affection that we should have. Therefore God finds it necessary to deal out to us many afflictions. This is how every one of us should deal with them. Our Attitude Towards Others Now concerning others, we may not at first blush condemn those whom God is punishing. We must keep in mind what is said in the Psalms, in Psalm 41.1, that God shall bless the man who deals kindly with a man in tribulation. But we have an incredible way of jumping hastily to conclusions in this matter. As soon as we see any poor man in misery and wretchedness, we say, Oh, God is plaguing him, and he must deserve it. When we do this, we are very rash judges. If God smites us, after he has bestowed many stripes upon us, it is still hard for us to admit that we have sinned. But concerning others, our tongues are ever so quick to condemn them. But gentleness is what we should incline towards. For example, when we see the faithful suffer, we should think, Behold how God deals with his children, instructing us thereby that there is no rest in this world, and that our happiness is in heaven, and it is thither that we ought to lift up our hearts. And again, if this happens to a green tree, what will become of the dry wood? Luke 23.31 If God does not spare those who have endeavored to follow his word, as we see, what will become of those who scorn it, as the prophet says in Isaiah 51.21? If judgment begins at the house of God, most miserable will they be who have hardened themselves against him, as St. Peter admonishes us, 1 Peter 4.17. And so you see how we ought to deal in this situation. Profiting from Suffering Moreover, if we have patience and meekness and are teachable, it is certain that we shall always feel a taste of the goodness of God in the midst of all the afflictions He sends us. It is true that often we shall be frightened by them. There will be a kind of disquiet in us that will so vex us that we shall think ourselves utterly forlorn unless God withdraws his hand very quickly. If he prolongs our afflictions, then we become wholly stupefied. Our courage fails us, so that if we are not constrained by the fear of God and by patience, so that we are wholly quiet under his hand, we shall be always wondering. But if we hold ourselves there and keep still, 
then we shall understand that he chastises us in his mercy and goodness. As it is said in the prophet Habakkuk, The faithful, after they have been in heaviness, do come to understand that God is always upholding them and does not forget them, but always tempers and mitigates their afflictions, so that they feel his fatherly goodness toward them and comfort themselves with it. They can say with David in Psalm 30, verse 5, that the anger of the Lord is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. So behold, here we may always have matter with which to cheer ourselves and to rejoice in the midst of our afflictions, so that we may perceive indeed that our Lord will always be merciful to us, notwithstanding that he uses some sternness in dealing with us, testing our patience and quickening us up to come to him and to labor with a view to the heavenly life. But we must always take the long view, as David says in the 37th Psalm, where he exhorts us not to be grieved at the prosperity of the wicked, for he knows that our eyes can be dazed by it. When we see a wicked person at ease and having all his desires, we conclude straightway that God has no regard to deal with men according to their worth. When we think thus, we stagger and are in such confusion that we do not know what will become of us. Now David says that in so thinking, he was acting like a beast out of his mind, and he confesses that he was at that point devoid of reason and judgment, affirming that he did wrong to all the generation of God's children, Psalm 73.22, until he came to look into the sanctuary. It is true that in the 37th Psalm, which I mentioned earlier, he says, I passed by, and I saw the wicked flourish and grow high like a cedar tree of Lebanon, and when I looked again, he had been cut down like a tree that had nothing left but dry stalk lying on the ground, so that there remained no sign of him at all. Such things do we see in the world, but even if we saw none, yet must we enter into the sanctuary of God, as it is said in the 73rd Psalm in verse 17. And there we must wait patiently until God makes it plain to us that all afflictions are profitable for his children, and also that he sends them as medicines for their health. And contrarywise, that the prosperity he permits to those who have contempt for his law and his justice will be converted to their great confusion. We must therefore learn to hold our wits and senses in awe, that we do not wonder in the afflictions God sends us. Strange and Unusual Punishments But to return to Moses and his purposes, let us note it well when he says that the punishments God sends upon those that have utterly rebelled against him, who have refused correction, shall be as signs and wonders to them and to their posterity. That is to say, he will punish them after a strange fashion, in a way not commonly seen among men, so that they will be compelled in spite of themselves to say, Surely this is the hand of God. Indeed. Can there be a more beastly contempt of God found than what was shown by Pharaoh? He was a man not only drunk with pride, but wholly senseless. He was a man who despised the majesty of God, a man so rebellious that he could not in any manner be dealt with. When he heard Moses and Aaron speak, he laughed them to scorn. When he felt the first strokes, he refused to yield. But in the end he needed no prophet to admonish him, for he himself could say, Surely this is the finger of God. We see, therefore, how God often expresses his power in such a way that even the most fierce are constrained to perceive and to think that there is some majesty in heaven, 
which before that time they had not acknowledged, and as a result they enter into consideration of their sins and confess them, and are the more lively touched therewith. This is what Moses here means concerning signs and wonders. This matter is worthy to be marked, for as I have said, if God begins to punish men, it is usually ascribed to fortune. This is agreeable to our state, for we know that man's life is subject to much wretchedness, so they think. Yet all the while the hand of God is not regarded, and if he doubles the punishment, yet men continue to be dull, and seem as if they could continue to hide themselves and escape away. They do not enter into their conscience to search out their sins therein. They don't want to know them. It is as if a man should go and hide himself in a dark corner in order to shun the brightness of the sun at noonday. Even so do we behave in all the chastisements God sends us to warn us of our sins and to draw us to repentance. But in the end, God augments his punishments in such a way that they become miracles. That is to say, they exceed the common measure, the ordinary order and course of nature, so that we might be ravished with astonishment and thereby perceive that God is showing himself as though his hand appeared from heaven. And this is more fully declared in the 26th chapter of Leviticus. For after he has pronounced the sentence upon them that reject the doctrine of salvation, he says, I will send upon you seven times as much if I perceive that nothing prevails with you. If my punishing you fails to amend you, I will add thereto seven times as much. And he repeats this sentence again in the end and says, If you will walk contrary to me, I will also walk contrary to you. The Hostility of God Now this word contrary refers to the stubbornness that is in us, which we have touched upon before. For we see very well those adversities that befall us in this world, and wading in yet further we confess that it is God who punishes us. But to think on the matter in good earnest, and for each man to judge himself by calling his sins to remembrance as often as God gives any inkling of them, this is farthest from our thoughts. Let each man examine himself. How many afflictions do we have during the year that should be testimonies to us of the wrath of God, and as it were summons to appear before him, warning us to sue him for pardon and to beg him to have pity upon us? Scarcely does any one day pass, but that a man is warned five or six times. It is as if God should say to him, Wretched creature, have you no concern for your soul? Why have you no care to beseech me to receive you to mercy? But scarcely once in a month will a man enter into examination of his life to condemn himself. And if we do it, it is but coldly. But we ought to be as ashamed and as vexed at seeing God's wrath as though we saw hell lie open before our eyes. But we see that very few actually think on these things, because each one of us forgets himself. That is the matter God intends by his threats to walk adversely to us. Yet we tend to continue in our course as if nothing had happened to us. We swallow up our afflictions. They do trouble us indeed when they pinch us. Yet we do nothing but shake our ears, as they say, and continue in our own way. Thus we proceed in hostility, yea, exceedingly so, when we fail to acknowledge the hand of God and do not perceive that he is a judge, so that we might condemn our sins and each of us labor and endeavor to withdraw himself from them. Therefore our Lord says that he shall come against us in all hostility. 
it is as if he should say, I will cross you and thwart you. Don't think to gain anything by your hardness of heart, and by your kicking against me, and by your dullness in refusing to perceive that it is my hand you're dealing with. No, no. He says, I will be as stout and as headstrong as you, yea, and more stout and headstrong too, for I will manifest all sorts of hostility. I will let my plagues run out at random, so that I will break your necks and beat you on both back and belly, and that without pity. Now we can see how much this word ought to weigh with us, where Moses says that the plague shall be for signs and wonders to all scorners, when they have given the raspberry at the threats of God, and have wagged their heads against the first corrections that he sends them, and have bitten on the bridle. Yet he proceeds onward still, and does not cease to wring them, but drives them in the end to come to a reckoning. Having done their worst, they will say openly, It is the hand of God that presses us. These are miracles, no ordinary thing, not according to the course of nature. Now therefore let us learn not to provoke God's wrath so far against us. Let us allow ourselves to be tamed by him, and let us yield ourselves tractable and gentle as soon as he has summoned us. Let us yield ourselves guilty without using any excuses, for we shall win nothing thereby. There is nothing better than to enter into pure and free confession, saying, Lord, what will you do to these frail and wretched creatures? It is true that we have deserved a hundredfold to be sunk, but yet for all that we flee to your mercy. Wherefore, have pity upon us. When we have thus condemned ourselves, it serves to pacify the anger of God, which will never happen if we harden our hearts. For then he will always proceed farther, until he has brought us to these signs and wonders that are here mentioned. Again, God will do the same thing when men prove slothful and negligent, or rather, utterly senseless. If we could be subdued at the first blow, God would take no pleasure in laying on us plague after plague. But when he sees that there is so much stoutness and presumption in us, that we will not stoop or bow our necks, He finds it necessary to hold on until he makes us to feel in very deed and after a strange manner that it is he before whom we must yield our account. Let us therefore mark well how the obstinate malice of the world is the reason why God sends such strange corrections to put us in fear. And if we consider well the state of the world at this present day, it would make the hairs of our heads stand upright. Certainly all men sigh at the feeling of the stripes, and they complain, but not to any amendment of life. Rather, they bite upon the bridle, insomuch that when those who are not wholly stupid enter into a comparison of the present with what existed before the wrath of God was provoked, they see a great gulf, and that ought to make us afraid. And so let us come back again to what Moses declares— which is, that the world must be very rebellious and hard-hearted for God to augment his punishments in such a way. For such would never come to pass, were it not that men were otherwise unreformable. Let us not accuse God of cruelty when we see him using exceedingly great rigor in punishing us. But let us acknowledge that our stubbornness is so great that our Lord must handle us after that fashion, for otherwise he should never overmaster us. That is what we have to bear in mind. That is not all, however, for we must always fear what is to come. And since we saw that God has thus increased his punishments not upon one man only, 
but upon the whole world, let us think upon it, and call ourselves home again, lest he fall to striking us with many blows, to our confusion and utter undoing, without giving us any more opportunities to come to a knowledge of our sins. Let us beware, lest God's vengeance proceed so far. And inasmuch as we see that the trials of these present days are very great, let us acknowledge that we have provoked God very much, and that it is not for us to abuse His patience any longer. Thus you see in effect what we have to carry away from this text, especially when we see that sin is overflowing so that all the world is affected with corruption. Even if a man does good, yet all the same it is so mixed with sin that he will be chastised. Not immediately, however, because, as I said before, God spares the wicked and waits for them, and meanwhile punishes the good that seek to walk aright. Yet, in the end, he always plagues the despisers of his law and majesty. And concerning the good, he will make them to feel his grace to their joy, so that although he exercises them with many chastisements and adversities, yet notwithstanding, they will always know him to be their God and Father still, and will rest upon him. As for the wicked, they are not disposed to taste or to feel the love and goodness of God, but rather are cold to him. But when iniquity has increased to the size of an ocean, and all men are corrupted, then the vengeance of God must also overflow so that none may be free from it. We have seen already the threat that was made here before, namely that the people should be led into captivity with their king. Verse 36. When this came to pass, were none carried away into captivity but the wicked, and such as strove against the prophets, and such as despised the true teachings, and such as were headstrong against God like wild beasts? No, indeed. There was Jeremiah himself, who had called upon the people for fifty years altogether, and never ceased to cry, What are you doing, you wretched people? Yet notwithstanding, we see that while others ridiculed them, he wept and wailed, and not contented with that, said, Who can turn my head into tears, so that my brain may be as a fountain, gushing out continually? that I may bewail the sins and calamities of my people. Jeremiah 9.1 See how the holy prophet, after he had labored in the service of God, and fought against all the wicked, and made war against all manner of iniquity and stubbornness, is still led away captive along with the rest, and is put to reproach. Not of being carried away to Babylon, for that had been the best that could have been wished for at that time. But God gave him not the favor to be brought thither, but he was carried into Egypt. Jeremiah 43.6 Yet he said, Cursed be they that go into Egypt. Go into Babylon and serve the king of Babylon. Be quiet and obedient there, and bear patiently this punishment of God, and in the end he will take pity on you. Jeremiah 42 The holy prophet was not given the same privilege. So we see then that when calamities come as a result of the general corruption of all men, the good are wrapped up among the evil. And why is that? Because it is virtually impossible to walk among such infections and not be somewhat spotted therewith. Although Jeremiah resisted the evil as much as he could, yet he savored of the public corruptions of the people, and therefore it behooved him to be punished along with the rest. God, however, did not execute such vengeance upon him as he did upon the despisers of his law. No, not by a long shot. 
For Jeremiah always had a good testimony that God was guiding him. And when he was in Egypt, he was by a special privilege free from the curse that he had pronounced upon all those that would go into Egypt. For they drew him thither by force. You see, therefore, how God wraps up his people among the rebels, but yet he saves them after a marvelous manner, which gives them continual cause of comfort in him. The same may be said of Daniel. Daniel is set forth to us as a mirror of integrity. Speaking of him, Ezekiel names him one of the three most holy men that can be found in Ezekiel 14.14. Yet he was carried to Babylon, and was it for the sins of others? He would have been a hypocrite and would have lied to God if he had maintained that it was not for his own sins. For he says expressly in the ninth chapter, I have made confession as well of my own sins as of the sins of my people. He begins by saying, Lord, we have offended you and been disobedient. We have rebelled against you, both we and our fathers, our kings and our rulers. Daniel 9.5 These words of his are spoken generally, and it might be said that he is simply putting himself in with all the others. But so that there might be no such misunderstanding, he goes further and says, I have confessed my sins and the sins of my people. Whereby we see that Daniel despite his integrity and perfection, was nevertheless stained with the common vices and therefore deserved to suffer his part and portion of the punishments that God sent upon all the people. Hereby we are also the better warned to stand in fear and to walk with greater weariness when we see the world so corrupted, assuring ourselves that in the end we must feel by experience that God has spoken in good earnest where he says that he will walk contrary to us if we continue to walk contrary to him. This is in effect all that we have to remember in this text, where Moses speaks of signs and miracles. For this reason, let us open our eyes in this situation, and let us not linger until God compels us to come to him by force, stretching out his mighty arm against us. But let us receive his word, and let it serve us for binoculars to behold his judgments afar off, and let us not tarry until he comes to the point of executing his extreme rigor. God's gentle dealings spurned. Now he adds the statement, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart when you had an abundance of all things. Verse 47. Here he reproves the Jews, since they were unwilling to hear when God entreated them gently, and he was speaking not only to them but also to us. We have therefore a general doctrine to be gathered from this saying, which is that God, of his own nature, is inclined to allure us to himself by gentle and loving means. God is like a father going about to win his children by being merry with them, and by giving them all that they desire. If a father could always laugh with his children and fulfill their desires, all his delight would be in them. Such does God show himself to be toward us. Indeed, he is not subject to passion as men are. We may not think that God is like us, but insofar as we are unable to comprehend his majesty because it is so high, he is happy to humble himself and to use a kind of speech fit for our rudeness and for the weakness of our minds. Nevertheless, it is certain that it is the property of God to win us gently as a father endeavors to win his children. What does God require? that we should serve him with an open and free heart and with gladness. 
And how so? Because he deals gently with us and gives us all things that we need. Therefore, we ought to be quiet and well contented and not be thankless. And so we may conclude that all the calamities, troubles, wretchednesses, and miseries that happen in this world are but the fruits of our sins, and that we drive God to handle us with such rigor. He is ready, you might say, to transform himself and to forsake his nature in order to master us, because he sees that sin is exceedingly great in us, and that we have no skill to turn to our own benefit the good that he is ready to do to us. All the same, as I have said before, God does not always wait until we have offended him. We have to grant that he prevents our sins sometimes. He sees that we are in danger of falling, and he takes steps to remedy it in due time. Yet notwithstanding this, all the corrections we endure in this world proceed from our sins, and the filth that is in us is the reason why God does not send us abundance of good things according to our desire. The fact is that men fall asleep and sap themselves in earthly pleasures, so that they are not able to consider what David calls them to, which is to satisfy themselves with the sight of God, and to rejoice in His presence. Seeing that men cannot attain thereto, but are constantly wedded to these base things, do we not deserve for God to withdraw the plenty that He was ready to give us? For He perceives that it would burst us, and instead of sustaining us, it would so overload us that it would bear us down to the ground. This is the reason why our Lord does not give us gifts liberally, just as we desire. After all, he is not drained dry, nor does he fear being impoverished by sending us plenty of all manner of good things. We know that he is a fountain that can never be drawn dry, but he sees that we waste and devour his benefits, and are worse than drunken, and that in addition to our riotousness, we are also unthankful not only falling into forgetfulness, but also spurning his majesty and turning our backs upon him. Indeed, if we have the means to maintain ourselves well, we fall to gluttony, pompousness, whoredom, and other looseness. And to be brief, the abuses we commit in the use of God's blessings are as immeasurable as the sea. Therefore, when he sees such things, he withdraws his hand and stops showing himself liberal towards us. This is the sum total of what we have to bear in mind. And therefore, seeing that God for his part is always ready to multiply us, and to give us plenty of all good things, were it not that we are unable to bear it, we must understand that we are like sick people, who may only eat a little food at a time, being constrained to a diet. And why? Because they are not able to keep their food down. From this we ought to understand what Moses is saying, that it is to our reproach. For what a shame it is that we cannot abide that God should deal gently and in a fatherly way with us. Behold, God offers himself not only in words but also in deeds, and he offers to give us all that we desire. But what do we find? He sees us not disposed to receive him. We despise him and thrust away his grace. Must there not be a horrible perversity in men? Let every one of us excuse himself as much as he wishes. Yet this saying is true, and when we have kicked and spurned as much as we can, yet we shall at the last be convicted of this evil, that we could not find it in our hearts to permit God to deal gently with us, nor have served him with joy and a merry heart. Therefore let us not wonder when he handles us as we deserve, 
since we are so rebellious against him. For when he sees that we kick against him, he must needs break us and deal with us in such a way that we may understand that he is our master. It is not as if those who are punished wind up serving God, but that they understand that he has the majesty over them when the punishment comes so fiercely as to be signs and wonders. When God appears to them, as it were, in a visible manner from heaven, then do they perceive the reality. Alas, I cannot flee or escape the hand of God. Then do they understand that he has the lordship over them, not that they willingly yielded themselves thereto, but that they lie languishing and astonished as men locked up in prison. What we have to remember, then, is that since we could not be content that God should handle us gently, by bowing under his hand, that he might guide us, turn us, and return us whichever way he wished, therefore we must be forced by tribulation and sorrow to understand that he has full sovereignty over us, and that his utter breaking and overthrowing of us is because we could not abide to be governed by his hand when he was ready to guide us. This is what we have to note here. The Loss of Spiritual Blessings We see the same thing in all humanity, and not only concerning the afflictions of this present life. We have this reproach laid upon us, that we are still, as it were, famished for want of spiritual blessings. For our father Adam was created in such a state that the world was an earthly paradise, the whole earth yielding him all good things to his wish. He endured neither heat nor cold nor any grievous want. Thus was our father Adam appointed lord and master over all the world. All the elements and all the beasts of the earth served him quietly, and all fruits served his taste and savor. What was he in his person? He bore the image of God, and was of such a great nobility and worth that he was like the angels of heaven. And he would have dwelt in this world with all his lineage, in a place in which he would have had no trouble, but he could not abide to be so gently entreated. When God had thus enriched him with his benefits, he had to ruin things for himself, for he could not serve God with a good heart and with joy. What could have grieved him? After all, God had shown him a fair and gracious countenance and poured out the treasures of his fatherly love towards him. But Adam could not abide that, and through his ingratitude alienated himself from God. And how is it with us today? We must serve God in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and reproach, for the earth is cursed to us. When we have tilled it, it must bring us forth thistles and thorns. We find the seasons contrary, so that when we wait for a good year, we see hail or frost, drought or rain, which serve to pluck the bread out of our mouths and to disappoint us of our food. We see the air troubled, the infections that often engender diseases. Great is the toil of men. For when they have gotten food with great distress, yet they lack something to clothe themselves with. See there, I say, what a state we are in, and why? Because we would not serve our God cheerfully and with a good heart, when he gave us abundance of all manner of blessings. But this is not the chief matter, as I have said already, for we are destitute of the righteousness of God. Our very truest ornament was that we could have fashioned ourselves to all manner of rightness, and how we have ruined this. Then we had reason and understanding, but now we have become beastly, for the brightness that should shine in us is but darkness. Again we are covered with reproach, 
and where the image of God should shine in us, now we have the marks of sin, so that even our very bare bodies must give us to understand the same thing, so that if a man is naked, he is ashamed of himself. And why? God by this means shows to us what infection there is in our souls, in that we find it necessary to hide ourselves, not being worthy to be numbered among his creatures. Finally, we become like dry earth. True it is that we are overly fruitful and evil, but of goodness, what is found in us? Seeing that we are thus lacking in all graces, there is good reason why we should languish in this frail life, because we could not serve our God with joy and a good heart at the time when he had poured out all his riches most perfectly upon us. Now, since we behold the evil that is in all mankind, let us also apply the same particularly to ourselves. Therefore, when our Lord visits us and makes us feel afflictions that are strange to us, let us cast down our heads and enter into such examination of ourselves as this. When God has given us the means to serve Him, how have we discharged ourselves with it? If there comes an ill year that brings dearth of grain or wine, so that famine threatens us, let us look how we honored God in the time that He gave us plenty. If we see that there is abundance of wine, then drunkenness will have full play, so that men cannot be restrained from breaking out into all sorts of disorder. And what is worse, they do not hesitate to blaspheme the name of God, and to rush out into all disorder, in order to fill and glut themselves out of all measure. When grain is abundant, we see the same thing. Men are so proud of it that they cannot abide either warning or discipline, but they kick against God. And their pride is moreover matched with cruelty, so that every man rakes in everything he can unto himself. He that has the most will, if he can, play the tyrant over his neighbors, taking no pity upon them that are in want. Wars and Rumors of Wars At this point we are in a time of plenty. Therefore we can expect our Lord to change his plenteous abundance and to manifest his majesty to us in order to compel us to understand what sovereignty and dominion he has over us, since we cannot find it in our hearts to serve him with a cheerful heart and with a good will, and since we refuse to give ourselves over to him. Are we at rest? Yes, and so all our endeavors center on how to pluck out one another's eyes and to torment each other like cats and dogs. If we are not warring with men, then we are warring against God, something far worse. And if we keep this up, let us not be grieved when we are confounded altogether, seeing we set ourselves up against the majesty of him under whom we ought to bow. After all, we see that most commonly men make war against God when he gives them rest. We shall see both generally and particularly that those who have leisure to do evil are the ones who persecute the church and torment the poor faithful ones. As soon as God gives them any respite, they seek nothing but occasion to do hurt, and to exercise their cruelty. And this is to be seen not only in the enemies of the church, but also in all others, both great and small. When God has given us rest, and we have made an end of warring one against another, we fall to despising God one way or another. Let us not wonder, therefore, if when a war is finished, it begins again immediately. For it is necessary that God should deal with us in such a way, otherwise he cannot rule us. Thus it is said here, in verse 49, 
that God shall raise up a barbarous people against such as will not be obedient to him. Such is God's rule over us that he desires to be like a father to us, rather than to be a dreadful king or prince over us. It is true that we must do him homage as our sovereign Lord, and that we must behave ourselves as his people in all subjection and humility, submitting ourselves under his yoke. But all the same, he continues to perform the office of a father toward us, and wishes to be acknowledged as a father. For he speaks to us in a friendly fashion, so that although his commandments are hard for us because of our malice and rebellion arising from the flesh, yet notwithstanding, after he has declared his will to us, he exhorts us, warns us, rebukes us, and does all these things with such mildness that we must lack both sense and reason if we are not benefited by the goodness he employs. But if we will not hearken to our God when he speaks to us in so gentle and gracious a manner, what then? Then he will speak to us with the heavy strokes of halberds, pikes, and hackbutts. We shall find this hard to comprehend. Their language will be strange to our intellects. And why does this come about? Because we have no ears to hear when God spoke graciously to us. Indeed, when he stooped so low as to teach us like little children that are taught their ABCs. Let us then understand that when we are so deaf to God's word, he must speak with us in another language, and he must stir up some barbarous and brazen-faced people that have no fear, reason, or justice. When you petition such people for pity and compassion, it will be in vain. They will give no ear to you. You will find yourselves in such straits, whether you think so now or not. And what is the remedy for all these evils? Let us enter. Let us enter, I say, into our consciences. Let us not grind our teeth at men as we are prone to do. Let us not strive with them, for that is not where our combat lies. Let us understand that God intends to chastise us by means of men because we have been stubborn against him and refuse to be edified by his word according to his first intention. And therefore, let us benefit ourselves by these warnings and corrections God sends us. And let us not wait until we feel the strokes. But whenever God does us the favor of teaching us at the expense of other men, let us receive profit from it. And when he spares us, let us not abuse his patience. And since the means to reconcile us to him is to accept the promise that he offers us in the gospel, let us embrace our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace, to the end that we may be entreated after a fatherly fashion at the hands of our God. Prayer. Now let us fall down before the majesty of our good God, with acknowledgement of our sins, beseeching him to make us to perceive them better and better, and to bear with us in such a way that his chastisements and corrections may be so fatherly and measured towards us that we may be reduced to the obedience of his righteousness. Let us pray that he evermore comfort us, so that we may have the ability to rejoice in him and to glorify him for his procuring of our salvation by all available means. And so let us also say, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, etc.